Well, well, good morning. Again, I want to thank uh, Elder Paul Fahrenbacher for uh, bringing the word last week. So appreciate that as well. Um, but I also just wanted to take a few moments and uh, just kind of briefly comment on some of the world events that we have going on with Israel. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of attention. Uh, obviously, what we have been seeing is horrific. It is tragic. Uh, it is loss of life on a scale uh, that we can't really understand in, in, the, in the atrocity that it is. Uh, it is fueled by deep hatred. Uh, Hamas uh, doesn't just want Israel's land. Hamas wants Israel gone. They want Israel uh, completely obliterated. And it is, it is a glimpse of pure and unadulterated evil that we don't get to see uh, very often. And that's what's shocking the world. There's also a ton of false teaching and so-called prophecy out there that is biblically false and dangerous. And so church, don't get sucked into that. Uh, be wary of reading every single headline, every single world event into the book of Revelation. We don't practice newspaper eschatology. Historically, Israel has been at war since the day they started. They're very good at war. And we see that even here today. That's, that's kind of now we see their response, which is uh, very severe as well. This isn't the first time that something like this has happened, and it won't be the last until Jesus returns. And so a few things uh, to help us, as many people would lead us to believe this is all end-time prophetic events unfolding before our eyes. I am not one of those people, as you can gather. It is by God's grace. First thing is, it is by God's gracious providence that we are about to break into Romans 11, which is all about what does Israel mean in the new covenant, in the new church. So that starts next week. And when I realized that, I just had to chuckle to myself. It's just like some people, and when you're preaching expositionally, they're like, well, expositional preachers, you're not really up with the times. You don't really, you know, you don't really relate to anything. And, you know, well, ha, neener, neener. <laughs> That's what I say to you because there's no way I could have ever planned that any better. So buckle up for Romans 11 as we start that next week. Uh, but for now, also I want to say that the answer is how we look at this and how we process this. The answer is not in the extremes. It's never in the extremes. This isn't that the church has replaced Israel. So Israel's no longer important. And neither is it that it's all about Israel. We don't worship Israel. We worship Jesus Christ who came from Israel. But rather, it's another tension that the Bible holds in balance. Israel was the start of God's redemptive plan. Jesus came from Israel, so Israel is still rather significant, and God still loves Israel, but the plan of redemption has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so now through repentance and faith, as we'll see today, we are all one people of God. And let's keep that in balance as we move ahead. And I think the final thing uh, just to uh, summarize here, what can we do now? Two things, I would say. Know your Bibles and pray. We've got to know our Bibles and we've got to pray. We've got to pray for peace. Pray for, there are gospel-centered churches that are in Israel that we need to pray for. Pray for them. Pray for the people on the ground. Pray for those suffering in the midst of war. Pray for God's purposes to be fulfilled here on earth. And so, that being said, I just want to take a few minutes to pray for those things and uh, turn our hearts to uh, the Word. So let's pray together.
God, indeed, these things that we see in our news are hard for us to understand. We hear of the suffering. We hear of evil. We see pictures that are hard for us to to look at, Lord. Such violence, such hatred, and now such retribution will surely come from Israel. Lord, so we pray for peace. We pray for uh, those world leaders, Lord, who are making decisions to be full of discernment and wisdom. We pray for Christians to surround them and speak godly truth into their hearts. And we pray for the Christians. We pray for those churches, Lord. Pray that you would fill them with your spirit in such a way that causes them to have supernatural endurance and perseverance and grace. And we pray for fruit in the midst of this. We pray for people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Pray that they would see evil and they would realize that this world, though sometimes through a thin veneer of comfort, Lord, is evil and has been given over to Satan in many ways. And so we pray that people would see that and recognize there is a king and his name is Jesus. And so, Lord, bring people to repentance and faith. And Father, Would you be with our country, Lord, as there are so many other worldly powers in the mix here behind the scenes. Pray that you would give us and our leaders wisdom, Lord. And we pray that you will protect us from anxiety. Pray that you will protect us from um, doomsday scenarios, Lord. We have much work to do, and you've called us here for this time and place. And so ground us in your word. Ground us in the truth of your word. We are so thankful that you are, in fact, sovereign, that you are, in fact, controlling all things, that nothing happens without your ordination. And so, please, Lord, ground us in the comfort of that, but cause us to be strong, cause us to be biblically informed. And Father, as we turn to your word, we thank you so much for your word. We do thank you that all your word is inspired, that everything, Lord, works to equip us as people of God for every good work that you have called us to. And so, Lord, I would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Again, thank you, Paul, for bringing us through uh, 1 John. If you're visiting with us, we are working our way through the book of Romans, and we are up to the last part of Romans chapter 10. Two weeks ago, we spent time talking about the nature of faith, starting with the Apostle Paul's despair for his Jewish brothers and sisters who have rejected Jesus. And we said that faith was not a matter of religious zeal, but rather a confession of lordship, a calling on Jesus. Ultimately, true saving faith, rather, is believing in Jesus. Paul will continue this week, the Apostle Paul, not Elder Paul, but exploring this time how people are going to call on the name of the Lord. And he's going to tell us about the nature of the gospel. I'm going to give us a running start from last week. Look at chapter 10, starting in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
And Paul asserts in chapter 13, right, where we ended a couple weeks ago, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then proceeds to tell us how that will happen, how that will come about. How will the people come to call on the name of the Lord? And so follow this logic here that the Apostle Paul lays out. How will they call on someone that they haven't believed in? How will they believe in someone that they haven't heard of? How can they hear without someone preaching? And how will someone preach unless they are sent? It also might be helpful to look at this in reverse order, right? Men are sent to preach to tell people about Jesus so that they can hear, believe, and then call on him for salvation. And to boost his case, as Paul always does, he goes back to the Old Testament scriptures and he calls on Isaiah 52, 7, saying, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. In context, in the Old Testament, a messenger would literally be the one who would go and bring news to the king. So you wanted a messenger with beautiful feet meaning that they had fast feet, they had swift feet, they had good feet, steady feet. Bring this message to the king. And so the messenger would run as fast as they could to reach the king as quickly as they could. In the context of Isaiah, it probably means the messenger bringing the news of the end of exile, because that's where Isaiah was talking about in that chapter. Imagine that, the news that the exile would be over, that they could return to their kingdom. And Paul means the feet of the men who would be sent to the church, in this context, of course, to preach the gospel so that people can hear, so that people can believe, and then they can call on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation from sin. Isaiah and Paul call these feet beautiful, right? Again, a a metaphor meaning something good. Imagine you're working outside in 110 degrees and and you're sweating and then someone comes and brings you a nice frosty beverage, right? They have beautiful feet at that point. Those are good things. You're you're welcome. They are welcome in giving you that. You love to see them. The gospel is that message that we are called then to proclaim and bring with our beautiful feet so that that logical chain of events could happen, so that people could hear of Jesus, so that they could believe of Jesus, so that they could call on Jesus. The gospel message that there is a king, and he has called us to enjoy him and glorify him forever. However, the bad news in the gospel is that we rejected this king and we've incurred his wrath. But the good news is literally that God has done something. He's provided his son as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus left the glories of heaven to come to earth, living a sinful life, died a sacrificial death on the cross, and was risen again from the dead three days later, victoriously by his heavenly father. That's the message we proclaim. That's the gospel. This is literally the good news that we preach so that people can hear, believe, and call on Jesus for salvation. In the Greek here, our word for preaching literally means to proclaim, literally means to call out, literally means to to announce. And so the first thing about the nature of the gospel this morning is this. The gospel is a message to be proclaimed to all. The gospel is a message to be proclaimed to all. If you think that these few verses might have special significance to me personally, you are correct. It is the greatest privilege of my life to stand up here and proclaim the gospel to whoever would come. I love doing it. It is my favorite thing to do. Uh, But what I preach is not my own thoughts. First and foremost, I preach a message 
And it's not my own message. It's the message of the gospel. I say often, I don't have any original thoughts. I keep just proclaiming what God has ordained in his word. And then the Holy Spirit does the work of applying that. And so, yes, men, pastors are sent, are ordained to preach the gospel. And that is a great honor and privilege. But in a sense, we're all called to do this. It is the nature of, for example, the Great Commission, which were Jesus' words before he ascended back to the Father. In Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Always, always important to remember that past tense there. Jesus has all authority right now. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so there's a context to this where it is the church. This commission is given to the church, but it also is given to each one of us. Each one of us are supposed to open our mouths when we have the opportunity and proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the main context of the Great Commission and what we are called to proclaim with our beautiful feet is us, the local church, as a unit. This is what we're about here at Highlands Bible Church. We are about glorifying God by making and maturing disciples of not ourselves, of Jesus Christ. And this happens primarily through the ministry of the church on two levels. First, of course, what's happening right here, right now. You are gathered together, and I am proclaiming the message to all of you. This is the message of the gospel. But second, it's the means of sending men out to preach the gospel. It's the means of of seeking uh, to raise up more and more men who will go out and preach. It's the means of identifying gifts that we have within the members and and equipping them for the work of the ministry and maturing each other. It's the means of, of funding missionaries that we will then send out throughout all of the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel. It's the means of planting churches. But on a more local level, through the ministry of all the members of the church towards the Great Commission. And you see, so there's multiple levels here in the context of the church proclaiming the message of the gospel. Commentator John Murray put it this way, the main point is that the saving relation to Christ involved in calling upon his name is not something that can occur in a vacuum. It only occurs, or it occurs only, in a context created by the proclamation of the gospel on the part of those commissioned to proclaim it. And so the church is that commissioning agency. The church is that equipping agency. Go and do likewise. Proclaim the gospel to your friends, to your family, to your neighbors, to your coworkers. Right? It's also guys like me who proclaim the gospel on Sunday mornings and whenever else I get a chance. It's the people we send out as missionaries. It is all of those things. But all that context is not in a vacuum. It's us, church. It's the local church. People can't call on a Jesus who they haven't believed in, and they don't have any reason to believe in him unless somebody goes and tells them about the message of Jesus, who he is, what he did, and why it matters. They can't believe in something or someone if they haven't heard of him, and they can't hear of him unless someone tells them, unless someone preaches the gospel, proclaims the message. But what is that message? Yes, it is the gospel, but Paul is going to dive a little deeper into what that is. Look at verse 16 of Romans 10. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? 
So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Remember where Paul started in all this, right? Israel, his Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul says, but they, that's who that is, that's the they, Israel, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Meaning Israel, again, has not understood, has not recognized, has not submitted to Christ as the Messiah. And to prove that point, he quotes Isaiah 53.1. Isaiah 53 is perhaps the greatest messianic Old Testament prophecy and how specific it is. We've all heard it, that the Messiah will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we will be healed. But before it says all that, it says in Isaiah 53.1, who has believed what he's heard from us? It's like Paul saying, or not Paul, Isaiah at that point, is proclaiming this message of this Messiah who will come. And he says, who's going to believe this? It's almost like he sees into Israel and he sees their hard-heartedness. And he says, who's believing this? They're still not turning. They're still not worshiping you. They're still not submitting to you. And so that's, that's kind of what Paul says. It's like, this is the way that it's supposed to happen. Isaiah didn't really see it. And you're not seeing it either. There's a large percentage of Israel who's just going to refuse to get it. And that's what Paul's saying. That's why he quotes Isaiah 53. Still today, with such crystal clear messianic prophecy fulfilled by Jesus on the cross, Jews still reject him. Jews, look at this passage. The traditional rabbinic uh, interpretation of Isaiah 53, which we look at and say, there's no way that's not talking about Jesus. They say, no, that's talking about us, Israel as a whole even though it's not written in the plural, I don't know why, right? They say, no, no, no it, can't, it can't be Jesus because that's, that's too close. <laughs> that, that actually might get fulfilled. No, it's, it's still about us. And you can feel that moment that Paul's saying, what? Why? Who would not believe this? Even today, the church proclaims the gospel, and not just Israel, but many reject it. Many, of course, even mock the church and mock the message of the gospel. But what is Israel specifically not believing? Like, what is, what is the actual core of what they're not believing or submitting to or obeying? Why haven't they believed the gospel? Paul says in Romans, it is because they reject the word of Christ. Paul only uses this phrase, word of Christ, one other time, Colossians 3. We can summarize it here fairly easily, what Paul means by it. It means the message of Jesus. It means the word of Christ. It means what Christ did, the word about Christ. It's Christ's story. The ministry and life of Jesus. In other words, you guessed it once more, the gospel. The word of Christ means the gospel. If we back up a bit, we can see something very powerful in verse 16. It's not just about hearing the gospel that matters. It's not just knowing the facts of Jesus. It's not historically agreeing that, yeah, there was a man named Jesus and he came and he probably did the things that all the other historians said he did. It's not just that. Paul uses a word. It's obey. It's not just knowing the facts of Jesus. It is obeying the gospel. That's what he says in verse 16, they have not all obeyed the gospel. Not in Isaiah's time, not in Paul's time, and definitely not in our time as well. One has to hear the message about Christ, and then one has to obey it by believing it. So second point about the nature of the gospel is this. The gospel is a command 
to be obeyed through belief. The gospel is a command to be obeyed through belief. Guys, the gospel is not a suggestion. Okay? The gospel's a command. And sometimes we get this all twisted in our squishy, non-denominational evangelicalism. We distort the invitation of the gospel to make it sound like poor Jesus is knocking at the door of our hearts, saying, can you please let me in? Please give me a chance. Please accept me as your personal Lord and Savior. Your life will be better if it is. Just give me a try. No, the gospel is a command. It is a command. And if you refuse that command, there are consequences. Jesus has been saying it since Mark 1.15. He says, the time is fulfilled, i.e. Isaiah 53. The time is fulfilled, and Jesus just simply says, repent and believe the gospel. That's what I'm here to do. That's what Jesus says. A perspective that, that, that turns this into some emotional invitation to let Jesus into our hearts distorts and waters down the truth of what God calls us to. Paul uses the word obey. We are to obey the gospel. And it's not only Paul. Paul, well, not only Paul here, but in Romans 2, 8, he says this, he will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, watch this, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Another contestant in one of the scariest Bible verses there is in, first, in 2 Thessalonians 1.8, he says it this way, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament is not kidding around when it talks about obeying the gospel. And we've got to compare that to what our evangelicalism has done to accepting Jesus into our hearts. Paul uses the word obey. The gospel is not a suggestion. It's a command, and disobeying the command comes with very severe eternal consequences. Indeed, it is the ultimate violation of God's law, which he calls us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if we refuse that, there are consequences. But to obey this command is to believe the message. We obey by believing. Remember the words of Paul a couple weeks ago in Romans 10, verse 10, where he says this, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so we have this obedience that's connected with our belief and our heart. This isn't just an intellectual assent, like, okay, that makes enough sense to me. I'm going to believe. No, you need to believe it with your heart. You need to understand it. It has to affect you. You have to understand from your own person that, no, I am a sinner in the path of a wrathful God, and God has given good news for me to be saved from his just wrath. And I'm going to believe that with all my heart and obey it. And this brings us back to the content of the message that Paul described as the word of Christ. We are called to proclaim the message of the gospel, not the message of men. I seek to stand in this pulpit week after week and proclaim the word of Christ, not the word of Mike. Yet how many Sundays do we see in pulpits and churches scattered throughout everywhere? The thoughts, the words, the political agendas, 
of men and not the word of Christ. YouTube and podcasts can say anything they want. Who is verifying their message? Is it coming from someone who was sent to preach? Spurgeon comments on that as Spurgeon would. Not podcasts, because they didn't have podcasts when Spurgeon was around. We must not go into the pulpit and say, I have been working out a subject in my own mind, and I'm going to give you the results of my thoughts. We had better keep our own thoughts for some other place and give the people the revealed truth of God. It's not my job to stand up here and tell you what I think. It's my job to proclaim this, and then hopefully the Holy Spirit is going to do the rest. Indeed, men should keep their own thoughts to themselves and save them for another place, not the pulpit. The pulpit is reserved for the word of Christ. Why? Because no other message under heaven and earth will save anyone. There's no other message which people are commanded to believe in. And yet, that message goes out all day, every day. Israel ignored it. Paul's time ignored it. And we ignore it as well today. Look at verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul, the master of anticipating objections and arguments, he says, perhaps you'd be tempted to think of the excuse that Israel didn't hear the gospel. And Paul responds, uh, oh, but they did. They did. They didn't hear it. They really did. And, and then buckle up because he goes into probably four or five Old Testament verses to prove that they did. He first quotes Psalm 19. And if we read that in context, my eighth grade students will remember, we just went over this. This is something very special called general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. And those whom he, whoops, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. That's the word of the Lord that goes out through creation itself. And this voice, Paul says, Paul reminds them by quoting from Psalm 19, this voice goes out everywhere and proclaims God exists. This is, again, general revelation. God revealing himself through his creation. We've already covered this in Rome, way back in Romans 1, where Paul said there, even without excuse, Romans 1, 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse this is saying is, again, all you need to know for sure that God exists is to step outside. You look at God's creation. You look at the organization of things. You look at the power of nature. You look at the beauty of nature. 
And that should stir something in you that says, no way that this happened through billions of years of time acting on random chance. It's impossible. There has to be a designer. There has to be a God who created all this. And in that, we see power. We see beauty. We see elements of God himself. This should cause men to seek him and then proceed to the other revelation, which is special revelation. Special revelation is this here. Special revelation is where where God has said, this is how you are to be saved. This is where God proclaims the word of Christ so that people can call on him to be saved. We can't know that from creation. All we can know is that God exists and we should seek him. But we know who he is in Jesus Christ here. That is special revelation. Paul goes on to then anticipate another objection. He says, okay, well, well, maybe Israel did hear the gospel, right, back in Romans 10, in verse 19, but maybe they didn't understand. He's like, okay, okay, fine, fine. Maybe they did, they did hear, they can look in creation, they can see that God exists, but they didn't understand all of the pieces and put it together. And Paul again responds, didn't they though? They did. They did. They understood. It's even more ridiculous, in a sense, to to suggest that, that Israel did not understand it. They didn't just have general revelation. They had special revelation. They had, I mean, three quarters of our, our Bible is from Israel. It's the Old Testament. They had Isaiah 53 and all these other passages that point to the coming of the Messiah. And so Paul says it's even a little bit more ridiculous that they didn't get it because they just didn't have outside creation. They had scripture. They had the law. They had the temple. They had the sacrifice. They have all these things of special revelation that, that should have put the pieces together. So you can't say that they didn't hear it. And you can't say that they didn't understand it. But you can say that they rejected it, that they disobeyed it. And Paul, for his support, quotes a couple Old Testament passages. First from Deuteronomy, and then from, once again, our old friend Isaiah. In Deuteronomy, he quotes from the middle of the song of Moses, after the big Mo announced to everybody that he was going to die, and that Joshua was going to take his place. He reminds everyone of the law of God, and then writes a song of rejoicing and warning. And so if we kind of get to that warning part, we kind of parachute into context in Deuteronomy 31, maybe Deuteronomy 31, 29, says this, for I know after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. He's like, I know what's going to happen when I leave. Joshua is going to lead you into the promised land, and then you're still going to reject the message. And they certainly did not heed the warning. Deuteronomy 32, this is where Paul picks up. In 19, the law sought and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. They've made me jealous with a God what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire, oh, that's where I'm stopping. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. What's, what's Paul saying here in quoting Deuteronomy? They did not heed the warning. Who are the people that were not a people? 
They were the Gentiles. Anyone who wasn't Jewish was a Gentile. They're not their own people. We're the people of, of God. We are the Jews. This is a future prophecy of God calling, including the Gentiles in the plan of salvation. And it's not going to be easy for Israel to accept that. That's why they're going to be jealous over a people that weren't really a people. That's why they're going to be angry over the Gentiles coming into faith. They're not all that happy about that because they're the people of God. And God says, well, you rejected me. You, you took my law and you disobeyed it. And so, yeah, and by the way, it was the original plan for the gospel to go out to the whole world. But now it's going to go out to the whole world. The Gentiles who weren't a people, they're going to make you jealous. They're going to make you angry. Paul goes to clarify that by quoting Isaiah 65. First, about the Gentiles, and then second, about Israel. In verse 65, 1, he says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am to a nation, watch this, who was not called by my name. Again, Paul proving these are the Gentiles. They found me. You can see how this is lining up here. This is a little bit of, of divine trash talking. He's like, hey, the Gentiles are going to get this. And you of all people should get this. So I'm going to use them. I'm going to graft them in. I'm going to use them to make you jealous. I'm going to use them to make you angry. And hopefully that will turn your hearts towards me. And for a lot of people, it didn't. They did not, the Gentiles did not seek God, didn't even care. But God in his grace says one day he would be found by them. In verse 2 of Isaiah 65, he changes and says, this is about Israel. I spread out my hands all the day long to a, a rebellious people. Paul picking that up in the last part of our passage. He says, as for you guys, what did I do? All day long I held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. How many hundreds of years did God bear with Israel? Still continuing to uphold his covenant. Still continuing to show the way of salvation to them. And they continue to reject him. And they continue to worship false idols, even up to today. Paul's like, oh, you didn't hear, did you? Well, how about all the ways I revealed myself through my creation and the prophets like Isaiah and special revelation? Oh, you didn't hear, but you didn't get it. You didn't understand? Well, how about the Gentiles? You kind of hate them, but they got it. They understood. I called them, and they're the ones that are so dumb and spiritually unenlightened, right? Not like you guys, Israel. They heard it. They understood it. And he concludes by saying, yet all day long, I still hold out my hands to you, Israel, a disobedient and contrary, or another word for that, defiant people. Paul says that the Gentiles who were not God's people didn't have all the advantages that you had. Remember in chapter 9 when Paul says that? He says, of all things, like you guys had the covenants, you guys had the law, you had the worship, you had the promises. The Gentiles heard and understood. So once again, Israel, you have no excuse. So third point about the gospel is this. The gospel is an offer to be accepted without any excuse. The gospel is an offer to be accepted without any excuse. It's very similar to where Paul was quoting in the Psalms. We can't say that the gospel message was too hard to understand. 
right? A couple weeks ago, he was quoting that. Who will bring this message down to us? Or who will bring Christ up from it? It's like, Paul's like, it's right here, guys. The message is near to your hearts. It's so profoundly simple. And it's right here. Even today, we have so many overcomplicating, twisting, and perverting the gospel to suit their needs and their own agendas. It's a good time for another Spurgeon quote. How can they call on him whom they had not believed? And how can they believe without hearing him? And how can they hear without a preacher? Here you have the whole plan of salvation. Christ is preached. Sinners hear the message of the gospel. They believe it, and so they're saved. What a mass of rubbish people have interjected into this blessedly simple plan. It's like in our nature to come up with excuses, right, of why we're not doing something, of why this isn't Israel's like, then Paul's cutting them off each time, says, nope. It's right here. It's so simple. Israel, in fact, did hear the gospel. They saw it in creation. They heard it in the prophets. And then Jesus appeared in the flesh from their own family line. They saw him with their own eyes and they rejected him. And yet, look at verse 21. The jaw-dropping mercy of God. The offer still stands. He says, it stood since Jesus rose from the dead, and it will stand until he returns. God is still holding out his hands, offering salvation to a defiant people. And church, that's where we've got to identify ourselves once more real fast with Israel. Because we can, we can make fun of Israel, and we can say, oh man, how dumb could you be? They had all these things, and they didn't get it. What about us? God's still holding out his hands all day long, to a defiant people like us. And yet still, some reject him. I already read from Paul in Romans 1, where he says flat out, there's no excuse. God's made his existence so obvious that no one will be able to stand on judgment day and say, you really do exist. Wow. It's impossible. And yet that is the cry of the atheistic and the agnostic worldview. There isn't enough evidence to believe in God. Famous atheist Bertram Russell was asked what he would say and when and if, of course, he would ever meet God face to face, face to face. And he says, not enough evidence. I would say not enough evidence. It's like, there's not enough evidence. Really? Look around. That's someone who just refuses to see. Back in Romans 1, Paul says, right, they suppressed the knowledge of the truth through their unrighteousness. That's exactly what's going on there. But not only is there enough evidence for the existence of God in creation, there is enough access to the gospel in the word of God. Yes, there are tribes and nations who have not yet read the gospel in their own language, but we're not talking about them. We're talking about us here. And sometimes people, it's another smokescreen people will throw up saying, what about that person in the jungle who's never ever heard of the gospel and God's going to punish him? And, you know, there was one person who was given their testimony um, and he said that to a to someone in college. He said, well, what about this person in the jungle who's never heard of the gospel? God's just going to punish him and send him to hell forever. <laughs> the guy says to him, let's admit it. You don't care one whit about that person in the jungle. And he was, he was like, I couldn't say anything to that. I was just trying to win an argument. He said, he's right. I really didn't care about that person in the jungle. I was just trying to find an excuse. That person became a Christian who's now a missionary in the same college that he was saved at. We're not talking about the person in the jungle. Just for the record, there are no good people in the world, right? There's still people, people everywhere 
have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And creation should cause you to search him out. That's why we send missionaries. That's why Jesus hasn't returned yet because we're still sending missionaries out. We're still translating the Bible and thank the Lord that he's not returned yet. This is why it's so critical that we preach the gospel clearly, boldly, and accurately. And there are hordes of teachers out there on Twitter and YouTube trying to overcomplicate God's simple plan of saving sinners through the preaching of the gospel. This is how people get saved, church. Proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the word of Christ. And it's not me, it's this. It's one of my favorite things about Highlands Bible Church is people telling their testimony and going, well, I started coming here and then I was listening to the Bible get preached and I guess I got saved. Yes! You did! And that's how it works. That's exactly how it works. Where does all this leave us? It leaves us with a huge responsibility, church. We are the people of God. And we've been entrusted with this precious gospel, the one and only message of salvation. And so I'll drop the big idea this way and then we'll unpack it. We are responsible for the gospel. We are responsible for the gospel, and I'll give you a couple ways how. We proclaim it, we obey it, and we've got to get it right. First, the gospel, again, a message should be proclaimed to all. And specifically, the place that that happens is right here, right now, in the context of the local church. The local church should be the primary means of biblical teaching for the Christian. It should be the primary diet for Christians, right? All you wonderful sheep, this should be your primary diet. The elders direct you to a a pasture of green, luscious grass where then you should eat and be nourished and be full. Podcasts, I know the irony because I have a podcast, okay? I know that podcasts can be helpful. They can also be very dangerous because you just dial up anybody or on the YouTube and who says, "Who, who who is this person? What is he saying? Where is he grounded? Be very, very careful. Jesus gave the Great Commission to the church. And so we proclaim it to everyone in that context. That being said, of course, we all have a responsibility to proclaim the gospel when the chance arrives. We proclaim it to everyone without bias. The gospel is a message to be proclaimed to all. But second, we have a responsibility to obey it. And if you're here today and you have not obeyed the gospel, if you have not bowed your knee to King Jesus and said, I realize that I'm a sinner separated from you, and I realize that you have done something for me to be forgiven and reconciled, I urge you and call you to do that today, to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ through belief. We all have that responsibility to obey it. But third, we have the responsibility to get it right. Church, it is not our message that we proclaim. It is God's message. He has made this message painfully obvious in his two books, as Calvin would say, right? Creation and the Word. We have revelation. We have general revelation and special revelation. And all day long, God is still holding out his hand, calling people to come to him in repentance and faith in the gospel. And that is an offer to be accepted without any excuses, because there are none. There are none. We've got to get the message right. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing comes through a message in particular, and that is the word of Christ. Profoundly simple is God's plan of of salvation, yet incredibly deep 
and its application to our lives. A wise man once said that when we become a Christian, we then spend the rest of our lives figuring out what that meant. <laughs> we can become a Christian right now, right here. You, you, you drop to your knees and you confess that you're a sinner and that you believe in Jesus Christ for salvation and then you've got to grow. <laughs> then you've got to figure that out. Then you've got to kill sin, which is all around us. The gospel itself, church, will never end. One day, this proclamation will cease. One day I'll be out of a job when Jesus returns. Repentance and faith will cease, but the word of God, the word of Christ, the gospel will endure forever. It will be the truth that fuels our eternal worship and service of our great God in the new heavens and the new earth. It reminds me of a passage in 1 Peter, and I'll end with this. Hear this, church, and let this sink into your hearts. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth, there it is again, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? Through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord the word of Christ remains forever. We are responsible for the gospel, church, to proclaim it, to obey it through belief, to accept it without any excuse. And that word of Christ will endure forever. Father, this word that you have given us through your apostle Paul, so clear, so compelling. And Father, we, we thank you for the message of the gospel, yet is, is so simple but yet so profoundly hard. Were it not for the power of your Holy Spirit that you give each one of us as we come to you in faith, Lord, we would never be able to live lives as Christians. But you've given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of the one whom you've sent, Jesus. Father, we pray that we would be correct, we would be biblical in our proclamation of the gospel. As false teaching abounds all around us, Lord, would you cause us to be clear? As the world and, and some of the world in the church want to capitulate to culture and water down the gospel, we pray that we would never do that. And we pray for those that do, that they would repent. And Lord, we pray for you to do the work that only you can do as the word of Christ is preached, Lord. As people hear the word of Christ, they believe it, and they call on Jesus, for whoever will call on the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. We thank you for that promise, and we say it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.